experienced in these blackouts, blackouts, stretches of time that you can't account for. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Captain's Log. This is your merry little captain speaking, Jose Valle Jr., joined by my most trusted co-host, first officer, and head elf, Mason Schrader. Season's greetings, Mason. Uh, Merry Christmas, Jose. Fuck you. Merry Christmas. Say it. Say Christmas. Merry Christmas, if you will. Christmas. Okay, there's a war going on, and I'm not going to be on the anti-Jesus side, okay? I'm not either. This podcast is fully alt-right. We're fully Christian. Thank you. President Biden is leading the war against Christmas. So is Nancy Pelosi. They're trying to to cancel Michael Buble. They want Michael Buble to be out of a job. They want Mariah Carey in chains. Yes. Tucker Carlson (laughs) has the only good opinions. Our guest today is Tucker Carlson. Tucker? This is what the left doesn't want you to know. They want you to think that it's just a holiday. They actually- Is it just a holiday or is it Christmas? They- Why do women have penises now? <laughs> I don't understand. I like it, but I'm confused. Your uh, uh, Tucker Carlson is a little too Ben Shapiro-y. Yeah, no, no, no. That was Ben Shapiro. Let's just say that. Oh, we're okay. Podcast. Yeah. Well, Mason, I'm glad that you're- in the festive spirit. I'm glad that you and I are on the same page. Well, Mason, I hope you're ready for today's episode because we are returning to the LeBaron family saga with part two. That's right, two dose do of Ervil LeBaron and the Church of the Lamb of God. This will be our last episode for the year. We're going to be taking a short break and returning in full force with the rest of this series and more in 2023. Which sounds like a fake year. Like, it sounds like a year they say in a sci-fi movie, and you're like, well, that's never going to happen. You know what I mean? 2023? Yeah. Just... I I mean, I don't know, man. Look, what what is real anymore? <laughs> you know, what exists? What is sci-fi, and what is just a boring dystopian hellscape that we go to work in every day? Elon Musk owns Twitter. I'm... Like, one billionaire away from putting a gun in my mouth, you know? What are we... What are we doing here? Yeah. No, no, no. I was that too much? Was that too heavy? A little bit. <laughs> Let me try that again. <clears throat> 2023, far out, man. <laughs> Good. We'll keep that one. Yeah. <laughs> In today's episode, Mason, we're going to continue to lay the groundwork for Ervil's rise to power and his eventual murderous rampage. Today, we're going to take a look at the patriarch of the LeBaron family, Alma Dyer LeBaron, and just how he would contribute to the mental hardships his family would face and the murder of one of his sons at the hand of another. So gear up, y'all, because it's gonna get kooky. I'm trying to be be more loose, you know? I'm trying to be more zen. So, I'm sorry, so you saying the word kooky as kooky is you being, that's more zen and loose? Sure. Okay. All right. 
Are you I'm not ready? here to steal your truth. I'm just curious. You yeah, ready? I'm ready. You ready to start, Mason? Yeah, okay. let's let's do it. Well, I can't wait. Let's begin. Proud of you, child, for you have displayed honor, the stuff from which heroes are made. I Last episode, we covered some of the more than unsavory beliefs of the early Mormon church leaders and just how they would contribute to Ervil LeBaron's mission for blood atonement later on. We mentioned that the story of the LeBaron saga of blood began with one man, the father of Ervil LeBaron, Alma Dyer LeBaron, and that is where our story begins. The year was 1923, and Alma Dyer LeBaron sat in a Salt Lake City boarding house late one night troubled by the trajectory of his life, feeling quite passionately that his potential was being squandered. I'm not going to lie to you right now, I'm relating a lot to this guy. Yeah, who hasn't been there? If I, who, who amongst us has not been in a Salt Lake City boarding house troubled by the trajectory of our life? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Alfred Packer was. Yeah, whoa. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I don't know if it was true. Salt Lake, but that's where he got arrested. Yeah. He had tried scratch farming, mining, and house painting, yet he felt deeply that none of those were the paths he was meant to be on. Dyer aspired for more. He deserved more. Dyer believed that his destiny was much more divine than any other man on earth. It might be Dyer, now that I'm thinking about it. Dyer LeBaron? That sounds right, right? Dyer? It's Dyer? probably Dyer, yeah. Dyer. I don't know. I don't know. Dyer believed it was his destiny to be the one mighty and strong prophet on earth this is a title that we're going to hear literally a thousand times in this series it's insane how often it comes up um i have i mentioned this to jose before the 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 episode started i've been watching too hot to handle Mm -hmm. i hadn't seen before this year i watched the fourth season i just started watching all the other seasons there is nothing more dangerous than just like a generic white dude with just too much confidence Yes. And they th- always think, and this is as speaking as a fairly generic white dude, always think we deserve everything, everything. Mm-hmm. We think we deserve the world. And we, when we don't get it, we do terrible shit. And honestly, that is a very good way to describe uh, a dare is, um, as an average white dude, you know, who, who yeah. believed he deserved a lot because later on he's described as handsome and i'm not so sure of that because that's the true crime thing that happens where every time like the bad guy like you know what i mean we we encountered this with the yeah Zach when they're not Bowen a and and addy hall case where it's like when, when they're, they're not, not a, a raving monster yeah when they're not quasimodo everyone they always get described as a very handsome and smooth and it's like guys a six you know what I mean? I like, mean, it is nice to know that if we ever murdered somebody, yeah, we'd I'm, be described we're, we're as handsome. We're going to be Oh, tense. yeah, we'd be yeah. the, yeah. Anyway. So, Dyer believed it was his destiny to be the one mighty and strong prophet on earth, a mantle previously held by Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon faith. This belief was not unwarranted. It had been spurred by a lifetime of science. From the cryptic message his grandfather had left behind, to the papers found buried in a wooden box on Charles Sellers' property, and finally the vision he had of him climbing a mountain and seeing 100 years into the future. Which I don't know what that looks like. I think he just got up and was like, oh my god. An what iPad. year was this? This was 1923. Well, his so, vision might have been a little bit before 1923. So like early 1920s. But it would have been like 
So it would have been like he would have seen now. He would have seen us doing this podcast. <laughs> That's what he saw, and he was like, "Holy shit! <laughs> we must be. We must do what they do, what the prophets told us." And it's just you and me. Yeah, <laughs> making dumb jokes. Another sign of his divine purpose was the monitor, the voice that sprang from within his chest that told him what to do, often asking him to uproot his family and move elsewhere. Jose. <laughs> yes, Mason. I have a thought that just has occurred to me. Yeah, yeah. It kind of seems like a lot of the things you've been mentioning mm-hmm. are just kind of like ripoffs of what happened to Joseph Smith. Isn't that weird? Like, it almost huh. seems like he just, like, gave everything a different name but did the exact same things. I don't think so, Mason, because this is the monitor and... Not Moroni. Little, yeah, it's a little different. Mm. Right, and but he saw and he found papers instead of golden plates. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost certainly he they they all they just uh, carbon like copied uh, everything that Smith and Young did, and we'll hmm. see that as we go throughout the series. Me too. Which it's almost like how the again, if you remember our last episode, it's almost like how Smith just copied the New Testament and the Old yep. Testament to write the Book of Mormon. Anyway. Well, and uh, Jose, I've, you know what you get when you make a copy of a copy of a copy, right? What do you get? Really, really good things. Yeah. <laughs> the quality only goes up, buddy. Yeah. It only yeah. goes up. Something that he would do a lot is move around. In 13 years of marriage, Dayer would move his family nine times, which is a lot. That's like almost That's- a move every year. Almost, but not quite. On that autumn night in 1923 in that Salt Lake City boarding house, Dayer finally had enough. He called out to God and asked him two specific questions. When are the Jets going to win a Super Bowl? Nah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little sports joke for the sports head out there. How are the Jets doing this year, Jose? Um, I think they're doing better than they have before. Uh-huh. Um, they're certainly on the up and I'll tell you what I did see the other day at the gym was that nasty tackle in that uh, Seahawks and uh, 49ers game. Did you see that? Like straight rip I shot? love how this is the response to how are the Jets doing <laughs> this year. That's the one NFL thing I know right now, man. I just yeah. have to look up at the gym and it was I was like, this is this will get me through conversations. Uh, yeah, that dude almost got fucking sawed Yeah, it was half. actually crazy though. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Also, the Jets, they're doing fine. They're not doing, they're having some quarterback controversy. Oh, well, I didn't want to get into all that, but yeah. Who's their quarterback? Mason, we have to do a podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. We can sorry. talk about yep. this afterwards. I'd love You're to. right. Okay. <laughs> to yeah, yeah. T- I'd love to pick your brain on yeah. the, how the Jets are doing this year. We'll, we'll get back to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> on that. <laughs> so the two questions that he asked him was, what was the status of his grandfather, Benjamin F. Johnson, in the Celestial Kingdom? And had and this is all the fir- all one question. It's it's really three questions, but it's like two of them emerge into one. So, what was his grandfather's status in the celestial kingdom? And had the mantle of the one mighty and strong passed on to his grandfather and not Brigham Young? And his second question, most important, should he take up celestial marriage as God had commanded the saints in 1843? And if so, why had God then commanded the saints 60 years later to stop the practice? At this time, Dare already had one wife, Maud, and she great had name. given it's just Maud is a great some name. Some fantastic names throughout the series. Mm-hmm. 
and she had given birth to eight children by this point. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. That's the Morgan Wrap way right up, there. Wrap it up, dare. Yeah. Damn, yeah. Alma. Mm-hmm. The fam- Alma and Maud. That's good. Alma nut in you, he said to uh, Maud. Maud. Yeah. That was actually pretty good. Thanks. I I didn't. I should have laughed harder. I didn't. Thanks. It took a second, honestly. That was a thinker. <laughs> good, as it should be. Mm-hmm. The family was down in southern Utah in a small community called Laverkin. Laverkin was precisely where Dare had begun to question whether or not he should take a second wife. See, that is where he met Ani Jones, the 18-year-old who helped around the LeBaron household. How Dare, old was he? Uh, he was... Um, Oh, shit. How old was he? He was born in 86. 1886, I believe. And it's 1923, so some quick math here. 37. Yeah, it's gross. It's it's gross. It's gross. I knew, I, you know, I don't even know why I asked. Yeah, I it, knew it was going to be. It was going to be gross, right, yeah. Yeah. So, Dayer had just begun, had begun to lust after the young woman, but was troubled. Because the official word from the LDS Church was that polygamy was prohibited... But his dick be saying otherwise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Too hot to handle. Too hot to handle. I'm going to talk about that a lot this episode. (laughs) After no response, Dayer finally turned in for the night, unaware that his questions were about to be answered. In the middle of the night, Dayer was awoken by someone gripping his shoulder very strongly. Strong enough, apparently, that it left his shoulder sore for a week. As he propped himself up, and his vision slowly adjusted, he beheld a heavenly sight. His grandfather, Benjamin F. Johnson, sat on a beautiful golden throne. He I'm wore... more of a porcelain throne guy. <laughs> nice. That's a toilet joke. <laughs> yeah. He wore a white robe and held a scepter in his hand. He also wore a golden crown upon his head, studded with seven gold stars, one for each wife Johnson had taken during its time on Earth. To Dayer, this proved that Johnson had indeed been the true successor to Joseph Smith and had thus obtained supreme priesthood in the afterlife. I don't because know how of the, he... the crown and the I, golden throne? I guess, yeah. Yeah. Well, and we'll Seems get like into a it because stretch. there's a... Pro- we'll, see, we'll get into it because there's actually a prophecy uh, that Joseph Smith said before he died of this one mighty and strong, and the way he describes him is almost exactly how Benjamin Johnson appeared to uh, Dayer. Gotcha. Okay. As Dayer took all this in, he heard another voice, a voice he recognized to be that of God. He explained that this all could be his, too, saying, This shall be your destiny also, if you abide by my law. Grandpa Johnson then took over and explained to Dayer that he had been... Grandpa Johnson's just like, all right, God, fuck off. Anyway, so basically... <laughs> all right, God, I'll take it from here. Look, it's like, you can fuck whoever you want. Anybody, anybody. Also, you speak for God now? <laughs> I don't know. Look, I'm on a golden toilet. I don't. I... Bye. It's funny because that's almost exactly what's going to happen right now. Grandpa Johnson then took over and explained to Dayer that he had been chosen to inherit leadership of the priesthood and stressed that one of the most important requirements was that Dayer had to resume the practice of polygamy. Once again, Mason, through your jokes. Uh, it's not you funny when it comes exactly. true. Yeah. After this heavenly visit wrapped up and Dayer went back to bed, he could hardly sleep. After this visit, and the next morning he began to make plans to make Ani Jones his second wife, which was it was a good thing that he had brought her along. 
After chatting with underground polygamists in Salt Lake City, Dayer learned that the best way to go around the law and marry Ani would be to divorce his first wife, Maud, and civilly marry Ani. Yeah, okay, but that doesn't... That's not polygamy, then. Not technically. No, not technically. Because <laughs> he's not married to... No, no, you're right. Kind of just seems like he's getting a divorce. It's almost like you don't have to get married to any of them, and you can just be like, hey, you're my wife. And then oh, I guess. Oh, right. You know okay. I mean? So I guess the part of this is he's convincing Maud that she's still his wife. Yeah. Well, then anyway. why not just? It seems like it'd be much easier well, just to be like, "You're my wife this, now," because instead of point, to the new girl, he could he could convince someone to seal him to both of his wives, but uh-huh. he can't legally be married to them. Right, so, but why not just seal yourself to the other one I instead don't of fucking no? Like man, it seems I'm like this is a lot of work to. It You're seems right. like this is much more work than just being like, also you, my wife, as opposed to being like, well, technically I've got to divorce you and then marry you legally, but also we're still sealed together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I agree 100% with you. This is way more, all of this is Convoluted is what I'm going to yeah, say. There you go. He sent the divorce papers down to Maude and Leverkin, who at first refused to sign them, until she too had a heavenly vision that convinced her otherwise. With the signed divorce papers in hand, Dayer married Ani on December 7th, 1923. And this is really interesting. The, the idea of, like, she was like, no, what the fuck? And then she also happens to have a heavenly vision, which also compels her to follow along with this plan, which, you know, believers of this church would probably say, well, there you go. That's divine intervention. But I almost, obviously it's not to me, I mean, at least, but... I think it's very interesting when you get cases of, there's a term, but it's basically folly ado. You know what I mean? Where it's like yes, a shared uh, yeah. psychosis. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a shared I mean, delusion. Kind much of simpler. It's she's a woman in a time where women are basically are unable to be on their own and being a divorcee is terrible. Oh, if shit, she I didn't just, even think about that. Yeah, you're right. If That's she, probably she's, it. And I, I'm not saying she's even conscious of that fact, but the idea is she's. it's making it's such a distressing thing that she convinces herself of something, Yeah, you know, crazy. Mm-hmm. Or, and this is uh, my preferred thought, is that um, Alma, or not Alma, who are we talking about? Um, His name is, uh, he goes by Dayer, though. Okay, Dayer put on a fake white beard. And showed up to her and was like, you should let your husband fuck whoever. And she was like, oh, it's a heavenly apparition. And he's like, yeah. Yeah. I also like to, I like to imagine that like he was on a pulley system. Kind of hoisted yeah, himself oh, up. Yeah. He a hundred percent was. Yes. Yeah. And then he's going a little yeah. too low and he's like, oh, bring <laughs> yes. it up. Bring the rope up. Yeah. 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 There's like a smoke machine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It seemed that Dayer had taken his first steps to achieving his divine potential. Out of all of Johnson's 800 descendants, it had been he who had been chosen to carry on the mantle of the one mighty and strong. I'm sorry. 800 descendants? Well, he had seven wives and then, you know, however many children he had with those wives and then however many grandchildren. Jesus Christ. Dude, polygamist be fucking... I mean, I guess I knew that. I just the it, number really eight hundred to yeah. one man <laughs> it, it is, is it's absolutely insane. And it's funny because throughout this story, I used to so so in my family, in the Valle family, there's th- my grandpa had 
36 children. He was married God four damn. Di- yeah, yeah, exactly. He was married four different times. With my grandma alone, he had 12, right? And God I was always damn. like, that's a big family. And then every time I talk to Mormons, I'm like, oh, never mind. I'm like, that's all right. Because they'll be like, my grandpa had 72 kids. And I'm like, fucking hell, man. My grandpa had two children. <laughs> to be One fair, of my- <laughs> those two children had two children. On my mom's my side, grandfather my only had five. So. Has four descendants. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Different cultures, I suppose. I guess. The Germans be fucking much less. Much less. Now, before we go further, we should learn a bit about Dale Baron and his grandfather, and, you know, God's best bud, Benjamin F. Johnson. Dayer was born on March 15th, 1886, in Tempe, Arizona. Is that how you say it, or is it Tempe? I think it's Tempe. Tempe? But also, I'm a German-descended yeah. white boy from yeah. Iowa. I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Dayer was raised respecting the tenets of Mormonism. During his childhood, Arizona was still frontier country, and one of the most prominent figures in this area was his maternal grandfather, Benjamin F. Johnson. Johnson had been one of Joseph Smith's first disciples when he converted to Mormonism at the age of 15. He was also one of the first saints to whom Smith revealed the doctrine of celestial marriage after marrying two of Johnson's sisters, which I'd like to imagine was just Joseph being like, all right, look, 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 I know I married your sisters, but guess what? Guess what? Guess what? You can do it, too. You know, like Joseph, Joseph, console. Joseph, dude, what the fuck? I heard you married both of my sisters? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Okay. Dude, what the fuck, man? That's no, no, no. fucked I, up. I get it. I get it. Tell you what, though. You can marry a lot of women, too. Yeah, I'll let it, I'll let it slide. Well, for, for you, for because you're my favorite brother-in-law, I'll, um, don't tell the other guys, though. I'll, uh, I'll let hmm. you, uh take like i don't know what do you want like two three wives whatever man can i can can you have sex with all of them buddy if you couldn't have sex with them i wouldn't be marrying them okay (laughs) Uh, all right ah you son of a bitch i'm in after the murder of smith in 1844 johnson fully supported brigham young and became one of the second prophet's most trusted allies johnson would be sealed to seven wives and after settling in the Salt River Valley of Arizona, would be named a Patriarch of the Faith in 1883. I looked at what a Patriarch is in the Mormon Church because I wasn't sure. It's just another fucking like office that's held within the Mormon hierarchy. I, I'd assume it's like a cardinal. It seems like it. It seems like it's like a cardinal or an archbishop kind of. I don't actually know anything about the Catholic Church either. I'm just saying that for a point of reference. Yeah, yeah. It it's seems, just like yeah, a high-appointed like yeah. official, That's, but he's not like the Pope. At the time of his death in 1905, Johnson had over 800 descendants who spawned five generations. It appears that Johnson favored one of his grandsons most, however, the son of a daughter by his seventh wife, a boy named Alma Dyer LeBaron. Or so the LeBaron family claimed. For the LeBaron family, the myth of their godly origins has always been more important than the actual truth. They point to the bond shared between Dayer and his whoa, grandfather. Whoa, whoa, Jose. Whoa. What's up? Are you telling me that in Mormonism, people are <laughs> taking a, a falsehood that sounds better than the actual truth? Yes. Mm. I know, I know, that doesn't seem right, but... Seems suspicious. 
You're telling me that in the Christian religion... Well, Jose, let's not be <laughs> offensive, okay? Oh, okay, sorry. Christians are, they're good people. You They've know never what? done here's anything the wrong. So, uh, here's the thing. They are. Some, Love this. Some, it's, you get good and bad apples, you know what I mean? A-cab, A-cab. but <laughs> instead of cop, it's Christian. All Christians are blessed. There we go. We're reclaiming nope. that, guys. We're taking it back. No, that's not what... Okay. They point to the bond shared between Dayer and his grandfather and the many blessings bestowed upon Dayer by him. Claims that the other Johnson descendants argue were simply made up by Dayer. Regardless of whether his claims were true or not, Dayer's children and his descendants were convicted to those claims. Anderson argues that without the fact of Dayer and Johnson's relationship, the subsequent drama and violence may have never occurred. But why would Dayer lie about his relationship with his grandfather? Well, Can't think of one reason. No. Well, why does any young boy argue that their dad could beat up your dad? Which they couldn't because my dad is the strongest dad out there, so he could beat up any of you guys' dad. But it's because... Scott could beat you while your dad up. All right. Look, first off, they wouldn't have to fight because they both mm-hmm. respect each other. But if it came to mm-hmm. it, my dad would Yeah, my dad up. would kick anyway, the shit out of your dad. My dad would beat up your dad. It's fine. You, my dad would so, kick the yeah, shit out of your dad. It's fine. Well, well, we don't have to focus on it because it doesn't matter because we all know that the answer. You know is what? I'll just dad. say I'll, I'll just say this. The answer is very, very obvious. Right. Yeah. My dad would beat up your dad. Yeah, my dad so, would beat up your dad. <laughs> exactly. My dad would beat up your dad. Well, because because my dad would beat up your dad. Well, because don't Dayer, stop. <laughs> I won't stop doing this bit until we it's over. My dad would kick the shit out of your dad. I'll just insert it in post. It's fine. Okay. Well, because <laughs> no, wait. Fuck you. <laughs> well, because Dayer totally and utterly idolized his grandfather, and he had every reason to, at least in his mind. His grandfather had refused to renounce polygamy and had even migrated to Mexico to avoid persecution for it, continuously hopping back and forth across the border like a game of uh, Red Rover, Red Rover. Dayer would point to various signs his grandfather wanted Dayer to be like him. One of the first signs came after the death of his childhood sweetheart, what would be the first great tragedy in Dayer's life. Dayer and Irene Pomeroy were in school together, when the girl had come down with a serious illness. Dayer prayed day in and night for her to get better, but despite his numerous prayers, the young girl died. And so Dayer began to become more and more interested in Mormon fundamentalism, and the most prominent fundamentalist he knew was his grandfather. Johnson told his young grandson of the concept of celestial marriage, and how a loved one, even a dead one, could be sealed to a saint in the eyes of God, and thus be reunited in heaven and live together for eternity. Years later, Dayer would posthumously seal Irene to himself at a ceremony in the Salt Lake Mormon Temple. I don't know how we got how this works or how we got away with that. I'm assuming that in a case like that, because I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they don't just let anybody pull up and be like, I'm going to seal myself to this one girl. I'm assuming that he probably got permission from her family or because she had no other lovers, but I don't like it. Regardless, I don't like someone being like, well, this person died and now I want to fuck them in the afterlife or whatever. Another sign that Dayer claimed showed his grandfather's desire for the young man to be like him 
was when one day Johnson placed his hands on the boy's head and said, When I die, my mantle will fall upon you, as the mantle of Elijah fell upon Elijah when he ascended to heaven on a chariot of fire. And f just so you're clear, because you, you can't see, I'm not writing this, I'm saying this to you. Elijah is Elijah with a J, like Elijah would. And Elijah is Elijah with an S-H. I don't have a reference point for that, but it's, a, mm -hmm. it's two different Elijahs, in case you're confused. Okay, Grandpa. Yeah, that's good. Johnson would also instill the idea within his grandson's mind. Wait, who's Elijah Wood? He's, uh, have you seen Lord of the Rings? No, I don't think so. Well, have you read the book? Is it? I don't what think year it's is out it? Yet. I, I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> no, because didn't that come out like World War Two? Uh, you, just because you saw that one Marvel movie, I don't know if that <laughs> means that that's when that book came out. Oh, Look, I, his name is Frodo Baggins. He's played by Elijah Wood in the 2000s uh, uh, trilogy by Peter Jackson called Lord of the Rings. Okay. Stop asking questions or you're not going to be my favorite grandson Ooh, anymore. Okay. Okay. God. Johnson would also instill the idea within his grandson's mind that the future of Mormonism lay in Mexico. Johnson had been obsessed with his southern neighbor since the church had sent him to colonize the country in the 1880s. At the time, the LDS church had been interested in Mexico for two reasons. To spread the true gospel among the Catholic barbarians. <laughs> Fuck yeah. But also to secure a safe haven for celestial marriage to continue being practiced. Catholic barbarians. And also, those Latina girls, huh? <laughs> Dude. Dude. <laughs> oh boy this got serious catholic barbarian was my nickname in catech catechism school sunday school catechism school i don't remember what how it's but how it's pronounced catholicism but, no it's catechism i think is what it's called the sunday school I for catholics anyway catholic barbarian about. was my nickname <laughs> mine was the methodist maniac <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a good one, too. I like yeah. the Catholic yeah. Barbarian and the Methodist Maniac. We're two, yeah. like, alt-right superheroes in, in <laughs> an alt-right comic book. <laughs> uh, um, so they also sent him down there to secure a safe haven for celestial marriage to continue being practiced. In 1882, the American government had passed Edmund's Bill, which prohibited lewd or unlawful cohabitation a line that was specifically written with the Mormon polygamist in mind. In a subsequent crackdown, the Utah legislature was disbanded and the, ter the territory was put under federal rule. Polygamists were rounded up, tried without a jury, and served six-month sentences. Which, like, I understand that they didn't like the Mormons. That's unconstitutional. That's religious persecution. I mean, well, not really, because they are breaking the law by having more than one wife. Like, the, the law clearly says, states that you can't do that. You get one wife! But to be fair, I, and to give credit to the Mormon people, they were unrightfully persecuted a lot of the time by the American government. The same American government that was like, we came here to be religiously free. And then the Mormons did stuff they didn't like, and they were like, well, hey, now. It you is don't get interesting. That much religious freedom. That the idea of. And I don't fully understand if there's a difference even between polygamy and polyamory, but, I mean, basically, they, it's, it's come back around. 
I say I would say the difference is polyamorous. You're not getting it signed in paper. You're not like we are married. I am married to you. I am married to you. I am married to you. Whereas polygamy is you are my wife. You are my wife. You are my wife. You know, like if that's your thing, good for you. I'm just too. Which insecure. again, I just say just do polyamorous. You don't have to put in like a fucking legal title on it. Just the be like I yeah. live with four women and we fuck and we have children and that's all right. Well, I think with polyamory, you got to be more co- comfortable with multiple different genders. And, and like you Derek don't... is here, too. He's, he's around sometimes. In 1885, president of the LDS Church, John Taylor, had dispatched Johnson to find a refuge for the saints. Over the following decade, saints left America for the isolation and liberty of northern Mexico. Johnson urged Dayer to do the same, telling him, Never go back over the old trail. But go to Mexico and keep on the front ranks of the saints in their march to the south. But go to Mexico. I like that. <laughs> it's just, suge- go to just Mexico. suggesting a vacation. If you like pina coladas. Go to Cabo. It's really great this time of the year. And getting lost in the rain. It's a fantastic song, but also the people in it are horrible. And I always think it's funny because they're, they're both willing to cheat on each other. And then they show up and they're like, oh, <laughs> it's you. Oh, silly. And then they're just kind of like, well, let's get to know each other. And I'm like, no, wait a second. You guys are both willing to cheat on the other. Why did you guys just brush past that? It's called polyamory. But, they, but it wasn't, though, because he was like, I knew it was wrong, but I got tired of my lady. And I was like, you know. If you like making love at midnight. In the dew summer rain, mm. I'm the love that you looked for. Write to me and escape. Have you like? Sorry. It's a good yeah, song. no, no, it's great. So, at 18 years old, Dare left Arizona for Colonia Juarez in Chihuahua, Mexico. Initially, things went well for Dare. He married a woman named Barbara Bailey, and they had a son, Adrian. But Barbara grew concerned with Dyer's obsession with celestial marriage. Hey, I'm just like, you're mm-hmm. talking a lot about wanting to, like, fuck other women. That's and how God, just, and God says mm-hmm. so. But you didn't mention any of that before we got married, and I kind of wish you would have said something because mm-hmm. I don't know if mm-hmm. I would have married you. Mm-hmm. So, well, kind of feels like you just want to fuck other women. Look, why dwell on the past? We can't change it. Well, you're not wrong about that. And you can't divorce me. I'm oh, a no, man. No, but, mm. So. I don't like that you did this to me. I don't like that you pulled that card. Well. Boo-hoo. Here's the world's smallest violin for a woman in, ni- in the 1920s. Ugh. Get over yourself. I'm going to go bang some strangers. And then marry them. And they're your sister now. <laughs> All no. right. Well. I can't hear you because I'm fucking someone else. She urged a return to America where she would leave Dayer, taking their son with her back to Salt Lake City. Dayer would be greatly wounded by this. How dare you, you bitch? Why? Because of because of my beautiful uh, mistresses? <laughs> this I have Boo. To, This came out uh, of left field. Open your mind, you bigot. God. <laughs> I do Jesus love the, uh, I do Christ. Love the, I love the idea of a polygamist being like, well, you're just not progressive enough. <laughs> well, get your... Th- I mean... Sorry, uh, I didn't know I married a fucking bigot. Jesus Christ. You're it's married- 2022, okay? I'm a white man. 
What more could you ask for? I kind of like the full package right here. Okay. So. Uh, hello. God's on the phone. He's telling me that I speak for him. So. Yeah. Unbelievable. Okay. The audacity. But he soon began to see some financial success in his latest venture and was thus eager to remarry. I'm over it. <laughs> it's also just a funny thing because I feel like this happens a lot in Mormonism, even in today, where because, you know, they're not allowed to have, like, sexual relations outside of marriage, they're like, I want to fuck this person, so I have to marry them. And then yeah. they get divorced, and then they're like, well, I want to fuck this person, so I have to marry them. And I'm yeah. like, you can just fuck. And I think God's okay with that. Yes. Zuko, Zuko agrees, if in case anybody heard him. He agrees. Um, yeah, this could all be solved by, by this guy just maybe fucking instead of getting married. Anyway. Mormons were truly the first fuckboys. Really? Yeah, yeah. They really were. He became engaged to a school teacher who would break off the engagement two days before the wedding. To add to I just don't like that you want to fuck other women. We haven't even gotten married. And you're already what talking about getting married the- to other women. Deal with you women. Unbelievable. (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) Twice? Once once I was like, once I was like, okay, you're weird. Twice though? It's like, am I doing something? Unfucking believable. (sighs) To add to his suffering, his beloved Grandpa Johnson died in 1905. No. Yes, but his luck began to turn around, however, when he met 17-year-old Maud McDonald at a church meeting in Thatcher, Arizona. Around this time, he was like 24. Okay. But she's still 17, so Look, I know it's, it's a different gr- time, I agree, but it's, it's not, not great. But it's not but as it's, gross. Yeah. Maud was already engaged to another man, but was charmed by the handsome and soft-spoken dare. What if I told you it didn't matter? Well, you'd have to divorce him, and then you'd marry me, but then I could fuck whoever I want, and you get that, because you want to fuck me, even though you're already engaged. Damn, you're right. I, this somehow worked out for you. Wow. Uh, for both of us. Hmm. All right. Give me you that gonna fuck. You gotta fuck me. I gotta fuck anybody. Can I fuck anybody? As long... <laughs> no. Oh. What if their penis is bigger than mine? That would be no good. <laughs> Couldn't have that. I'd be embarrassed. While walking her home one evening after mutual, which is like a little mutual is like where all the single Mormons go. They all get put into one church group and then they all like decide who they're going to marry to fuck. You know what I mean? Honestly, good reality TV show. Yeah. We need to give Mormons more TV shows. I'd watch mutual. Yeah. He told her uh, that that's, it's an app now too. It's an app. They have it's their Tinder. So he, while walking her home one evening after mutual, he told her of the special mission that the Lord had given him to perform in Mexico, and how he couldn't let anyone waste his time who wasn't as devoted to the Lord's wishes as he was. He basically did the scene from Whiplash, where he brings her to the cafe and he's like, "Look, I'm, I'm gonna do my drumming, and it's gonna drive you away, and you're gonna ask me to stop, and I'm not gonna stop because I love to do my drumming. So I think it's better if we just break up. You know what I'm talking about? It like blew up again on TikTok. Everyone is discovering Whiplash for the first time. That movie was great. So good. But that same year, Grand Budapest so came out. Oh wow, interesting. It was a good year. 
In October of 1910, the couple was married, and they moved to Dyer's home in Mesa, Arizona. She was like, damn, this fucker hate doesn't want me. I want him even more. Let that be a lesson, kings. Always, mani- <laughs> always manipulate women. <laughs> Shortly after the wedding... How's your dating life going, Jose? Not good, not good. Mm-hmm. Shortly after the wedding, Dyer was summoned to the house of Charles Sellers, an old friend of his late grandfather who told him an amazing story. So basically this kid this guy he gets given this ring and he's got to take it to the to this mountain to destroy it because it's like the one ring of power and like him and his buds come along and they there's a wizard and shit and uh, it's pretty good. I'm sorry. Is there something about Elijah Wood in this because my grandfather once told me something. Yes. He <gasps> plays Frodo. Oh. Dude, you haven't seen the movies? This is insane. I haven't, but they seem amazing. Shortly, I have them on Blu-ray. Let me let me show you them. Shortly before his death, Johnson had instructed Sellers to keep a box for him, which was to be given to Dare on his 24th birthday. Sellers had dug up the old box and now presented it to Dare. Inside, Dare mostly found junk that would only be interesting to a close relative. A poem, some epistles on Johnson's view of marriage, obsolete property titles, but one of the most curious items within the bunch was a letter from Johnson to the secretary of the Mormon president in 1903. In an effort to get first-hand impressions from the last OG Mormons, George F. Gibbs, secretary to the first presidency of the church, sent a questionnaire in the late, in late 1902 to Johnson. It had 19 questions, which ranged from opinions on the Mormon doctrines and his recollections of the early days of the church and the personalities of its leaders. Johnson's reply ran 64 pages. Can you imagine nice. that? You just like expect him to like give you like two sentence answers and this asshole's like, you're 64 pages. Mm, let me be frank. Here's an essay that <laughs> yeah. would piss off most college professors. Yeah. I That was one of the things that was most frustrating about being in writing classes is having to read other people's work. And I'm like, God, you just wrote everything. Like you just wrote everything that came to your mind. You didn't cut any of this out. It's all right. Not everyone I, is, yeah. not everyone is uh, a good writer like us, too. After recounting Joseph's prophecies, which included such foretellings as, this is your, the return of Mason's Joseph Smith right here. Oh, shit. Well, there were 12 kingdoms on planet revolving around our solar system, to which the Lord gave equal division of his time or ministry. He then told of a secret testimony given by Smith to his close circle, which Johnson said, But this fourth question of itself would require a longer chapter, which must wait until the fulfillment of a prediction by the prophet relating to a testimony that I should bear after I had become hoary with age. Of things which he... That day, there's so many commas, (laughs) taught to the circle of his friends, then around him, of whom I am the only one now living. I hate this style of writing when motherfuckers would write like that. Like, of which that day he taught to us who were around him by his presence, of which I was. On the evening of. 
But this didn't seem to be the mad ramblings of an old man, Mason, as he would go on to mention it again later in his letter, saying, There were, dear brother Gibbs, other teachings, of which I am not at full liberty to write. But if I had your ear, I would remember that the prophet once said to me, Benjamin, in regard to those things I have taught you privately that are not yet for the public, I give you the right, when you are so led, to commit them to others, for you will not be led wrong in discerning those worthy of your confidence. So I think if I can sum that up here, basically, <laughs> Joseph Smith told Grandpa Johnson that... Something. I can... That that I have... A, here's a, This is a secret, and you're allowed to tell whoever you want to tell When you it. decide you want to tell Whenever it. you want, yeah. yeah. To Dayer, there was only one possible answer. It had been Johnson, not Brigham Young, or even Joseph Smith III, who had inherited the mantle of prophet. The issue in this belief, however, is that during his life, Johnson never claimed to be Smith's successor, and he proudly supported Brigham Young. But this did not matter to Dayer. He saw this and the previous signs of his life as reason to believe that he was anointed by the second prophet of the Lord and set out for Mexico. But with the Mexican Revolution heating up, the young couple and many other Mormons left northern Mexico for the U.S. in 1912. Dyer was left confused by the war in Mexico, feeling that the celestial authorities were playing fast and loose with the man who had been given the blessing of Elijah. Which Elijah? J. Elijah. Okay, good. This was until Dayer had a vision that cleared things up. He had to play the waiting game, waiting Duh. for the dust to clear in Mexico before he could return. So, the family began to move around, moving five times within a decade. They settled in the small farming community of Laverkin, Utah in 1922 with eight small children. A year later, Dayer would have his conversation with God and his grandfather in the Salt Lake City boarding house and would move his family south to Mexico, seemingly because of the threat of mob violence rather than by devotion. You see, by 1923, the church had also turned on polygamists, dismantling the Lord's everlasting covenant. It had begun in October 1890 when Wilford Woodruff, the fourth president of the church, issued a proclamation known as the Manifesto. Inasmuch as laws have been enacted by Congress forbidding plural marriages, I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws and to use my influence with the members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. This Boo. Boo. We wanna boo. fuck up we wanna have multiple women, stop. Multiple wives. This brought division within the faith as Utah became a state. In 1904, a second manifesto came down from the Salt Lake Temple, making plural marriage a heresy against the faith and grounds for excommunication. By the 1920s, those still practicing polygamy were hated and shunned by the rest of the saints. Mormon judges cracked down and the Mormon newspapers applauded them. Excommunications were hounded out gladly. This did not bode well for Dayer, hmm. as word spread of his ceiling to Ani. Hmm. Yeah. Uh-oh. Wait a fucking second. I got oh, shit out of Dodge. No. On February 17th, 1924, both Maud and Dare were excommunicated from the LDS Church. 
Ani was excommunicated a month later. Dayer's neighbors began to turn on him, and when Ani returned to Leverkin, some of Dayer's sons heard talk of a LeBaron lynching party forming. The local bishop, sympathetic to the family, urged them to flee before it was too late. As they made evacuation plans, Maud took Ani aside and asked her if she was willing to go to Mexico. Ani told her that she would go to China to be with Dare. The dick can't be that good, honey. It can't be that good. Well, that's what happens when you're an 18-year-old that got groomed by a 47-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Carefully and with help, the family fled south. They bundled the eight LeBaron children, and Maud and Ani took them on a train to El Paso, Texas. There, they would meet with Brother Martinson, a saint who operated an underground railroad for fleeing fundamentalists. On the other side of the border, the women and children were reunited with Dare, and they made their way to Colonia Juarez. Through this journey, Maud and Dare would conceive their ninth son, a son who would be named Ervil LeBaron. When you knew you were in big trouble, you still told the truth. Colonia Juarez was originally a safe haven for Mormon polygamists, but after the Mexican Revolution, many of those polygamists had fled and never returned. The former oasis was now nothing more than a shell of its former prosperity. But this mean this meant lower house prices, so Dayer would purchase two homes upon returning to Colonia Juarez. The smaller of the two would be for Ani. He would plant many fruits and vegetables, trying to create a garden oasis. This would perhaps lead to one of the first tragedies that befell the family. Some of the children accidentally consumed mistletoe berries and got very sick. Maud's sixth child, a daughter named Jenny, would die as a result. But soon after, Maud would give birth to her ninth son on February 22nd, 1925, Ervil LeBaron would be born. When you say ninth son, does that mean he was the ninth boy or the ninth child? Ninth child. With a change of attitudes in Colonia Juarez, the LeBarons would face persecution over the next 20 years. Although townsfolk would argue that this was never the case, but rather it was the LeBarons who separated themselves. The family would grow with Ani giving birth to six children and Maud to 13, with the last two, twins, dying shortly after their birth. This is, by all accounts, when the godly family began to crack. Ani would leave Dyer in the mid-1930s and never return, taking her children with her. Many of the LeBaron family blamed the abundant mental health issues that plagued the family afterwards on the townfolk of Colonia Juarez and their treatment of God's favorite family. Herman Hatch, a neighbor, explained to Anderson, saying, The boys were as good young fellows as we had around here, but all through their lives, they had a great amount of pressure, mental pressure, put on them by their home life. That's that's what was wrong with the whole mess of them. Their parents had been excommunicated, and they spent their lifetime self-justifying themselves and shoving their beliefs on those kids, and those kids would go to church, and they'd listen to their Sunday school teachers and their priesthood leaders tell them something different, and they were just confused. You know, a tremendous amount of pressure. 
and it just kept going on and on until it turned into a mental disorder. I love a uh, very, um, what's the word here, insightful character in the story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Remember that guy yeah. Capriccio from the Zach Bowen and Addie Hall case was like yes. a good friend and he just had like incredible insight? Yes. Yeah. The first to fall was Lucinda who was 17 when she began to suffer dementia after an incident in which her- Oh my God. Yeah, dude, it's, this is the beginning. It, it just goes downhill for this family. She was 17 when she began to suffer dementia after an incident in which her teacher went on a rant about polygamists and adulterers using Dayer as an example, unaware that the child was there. Okay. Which is bullshit. What the fuck? Maude and Dayer. How do you, you have a class roster. How are you not aware that the child is there? Like that's, I, can't, I can't believe that. Maude and Dyer would treat Lucinda's mental ailments as demonic possession and would have Mormon leaders administer blessings, which seemed to help. But whenever yeah, Dyer I'm would, sure that did. Yeah, right. But whenever Dyer would come in the room, her hysteria would be set off. After recovering enough to finish high school, she moved to the U.S. where she married a polygamist and had three kids. Everything seemed to be fine until she was found naked walking down a Salt Lake City street. She would be sent back to her parents and would spend most of the 40s chained by the ankle in a small hut. Oh, no. Yeah. No, no good. No good at all. Oh. Yeah. God, this is going to get bad, isn't it, Jose? Yep. Yep. Lucinda would hardly be the last LeBaron child to suffer these psychotic episodes. Of the three girls, all would suffer delusions of grandeur or paranoia. Of the seven boys, six would claim to hear voices. Five would have hallucinations that they had inherited divine revelation, and four would claim to be the Lord's prophet on earth. Ten of Maud's children would actually make it to adulthood. The LeBaron children would be split into two groups, the house of Ben and the house of Joel. So do you think... Do you think that this is really a play, this is really the way their treatment, or do you think that there was just... Actually, like I mean, this sounds like schizophrenia or like bipolar disorder or something. I think there's definitely a history of mental health disorders in this family, and I think it, Dayer is probably the first example of it. I think these hallucinations, this this monitor, this divine presence, I think that's all mental health. It seems like it. Um, but I, again, this is why why I wanted to tell the story of Dayer as well and his beliefs because I can see why these kids had mental health disorders because look at what they're being raised to believe in that their father well, is this you know what it, i mean it does certainly change especially with the boys like they all claim to have divine visitations and hallucinations and they're the it, prophet it certainly does change the perspective of joseph smith seemed like a con man mm-hmm this now seems like it's a legitimate mental illness yes. like all the way through like yes. i and, and that's not to that's not to use as an excuse but it seems like it's it just shifts the the paradigm of this whole thing to like yeah. oh fuck these were legitimately unhinged people yeah it's just it's like it's like that story of yeah. um but i think this again this is why i like cases like this because it shows you the danger of religious fanaticism you know what i mean right it's like the story of the alexander family murders where that kid was fucking deranged because right. he was raised to believe you are the prophet of god you can do whatever you're you know you're the mouthpiece for the lord you are reborn whoever whatever you know what i mean and it's like that mm-hmm. 
fucks with a child's mind. And I think it was, it must have, not entirely, but I think it was a very similar thing with these people where it was like, they're growing up believing that their parents have visions, that their dad is a mouthpiece of God, that one day one of them will be the mouthpiece of God. And that, right. so I think it only added to what was almost certainly a hereditary uh, mental health issue. Gotcha. Okay. The house of Ben was made up of the older generation born between 1912 and 1918, who identified with the land of the North the most. It was made up of Irene, Ben, Wesley, Lucinda, and Alma. The house of Joel was the younger generation born between 1921 and 1930, who identified with the land of the South the most. It was made up of Esther, Joel, Ervil, Florin, and Verlin. In both houses, the old... And this is where it gets kind of interesting, the symmetry. In both houses, the oldest were girls, who would marry mainstream Mormons and would build lives free from their family and the ensuing drama. In both houses, the second oldest were the boys with dominant personalities, who would be the first to lay claim to the mantle of the one mighty and strong. And both would see their lives ended in unnatural fashions, after trying to rally their siblings to their cause. The third members in each house would also feud with their older siblings over the mantle. For Ben, it would be Wesley. For Joel, it would be Ervil. The symmetry between both of these houses is very fascinating. Now, our story takes a look at Ben LeBaron, the oldest male in the family and the shining star, who excelled in high school and was a near-graduate of Gila Junior College in Arizona at 21. He was engaged to be married, but shortly after a Christmas visit to Colonia Juarez in 1935, he suffered a mental breakdown and was institutionalized for two months. He would be diagnosed with dementia precox, or prematurely out of one's mind, a diagnosis that is no longer given today. Except oh, yeah, you, the, you mean the, the diagnosis of... Oh, way crazy, way fast <laughs> is not an actual diagnosis we still use. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I do kind of like that, though. Um, prematurely out of one's mind. It's kind of cool. Too, too crazy, I would wear, too fast. Too fast. I would wear that on a t-shirt. Prematurely out of one's mind. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, dementia, what is it, Paracox? Paracox? Dementia Precox? Dementia Precox. That's a great band name. Mm-hmm. But Ben found a different explanation for his ailment. He found it in Mormon theology, and specifically in the prophecy of the one mighty and strong, as Joseph Smith had revealed in 1832, saying, And it shall come to pass that I, the Lord God, will send one mighty and strong holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light for a covering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels, <laughs> while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth, he will shit the truth. <laughs> I knew Just, that that line was gonna crack you up. He will shit the truth. His bowels will be a fountain of truth to set in order the house of God. Yeah, what does that even mean? His it bowels means shall he's be. Got, he's got tech. Look, Biggie Smalls once said that he has technique flowing out the butt cheeks. My, my one mighty and strong will have truth. Wow. Coming out his butt cheeks. Wow. He'll be shitting on you. He also. He'll be <laughs> shitting the truth on you. He'll be shitting the truth <laughs> on you. 
He also looked at the Book of Mormon, which provided clues as to how to recognize this one mighty and strong. His visage will be so marred, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. But behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand. Therefore, they shall not hurt him. Although he shall be marred because of them, yet I will heal him, for I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. <laughs> Suck it. I'm the best. He'll be me. I'll be him. I will never die. <laughs> Joseph Smith, bitch. <laughs> ben would also go on to say that after being struck by the parallels of the prophecy and his own life, he retired to a hill where he asked the Lord who this messenger would be. And it was revealed that it was him. So God, Whoa. who is this messenger? God's like, you're not going to believe this, Ben. Dude, dude, this is dude you guys are not. Fucking socks off. I was just up on that hill, right? Yeah. I asked God who his new messenger was. Guess who it was? Dude, who was it? Dude. Dude. Dude? It was me. Dude. Right? It was me. Sick. It's fucking me, dude. <sighs> Have you ever noticed how weird our hands are? They're so fucking... So it's fucking like, weird, dude. It's like each finger is like a little man, but they're like attached. Whoa. Ben immediately got to work and sent orders to the LDS church in Salt Lake City, ordering them to fall in line behind him. And they're just like, shh, rip it up. Um, we, um, we got this letter uh -huh. from a, do you remember Johnson? The guy that was like, some, oh, yeah, it was yeah. like, he was like, Brim, he was like best friend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was like Joseph's third and brimming second. Yeah. He had a, son who had a son mm -hmm. and that son is saying that he's the new prophet <laughs> uh, that's funny um yeah just throw Dude. that shit out right, yeah just throw it out. okay no yeah this that's fine cannot possibly come back to bite us in the ass just throw it down just throw it away mm -mm. yeah yeah. As a matter of fact, hey, you don't I gotta think... go take a big stinky poop. Let me see that. Yeah. Wipe my ass with that letter. Hey, that's funny. Yeah. You don't think that like we're irresponsibly running a religion that people are living their entire lives and devoting themselves wholly to it, right? Look. When I look out that window, I see the big ass mall that we own. I see mm -hmm. the thirty five businesses that we own. I right. see the the dairy farm that we own. Mm-hmm. And then I see the church that we own, which makes us money as well. Right. So I ask you, uh huh, what was your question? Because I just was I was caught up on all the money that we're getting. I'm gonna be honest. I was jerking off with a pile of money. Okay. And I forgot cool. what I asked too. Anyway, time to tell the IRS why they shouldn't tax us. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> By this point, Alma had served a mission and settled in Hidalgo. Joel had followed suit prepping to go on his mission, but only on the condition that his 15-year-old brother, Ervil, be sent with him. Which is an odd request, because saints are not sent out into the field at such a young age. But, with special permission from the LDS office in Salt Lake City, the request was granted, and the brothers set out to spread Mormonism to the good people of Mexico. Alma had married a Mexican Mormon after his mission when he began having visions. 
one of which told him to enlist in the army and help the fight in Europe. He would get as far as his brother Ben's house before Ben dissuaded him from enlisting. This is during World War II. Explaining right. to him that, and, and they were, so I don't know if I clarified this, only Maud and Dyer were excommunicated. The children had all grown up in the church. That's why they went and served their missions. They oh, all they, were, the they yeah. were communicated. They were communicated. So Ben pointed to the fact that Mormon scripture barred saints from fighting in secular wars. So Alma did not enlist and spent a month in jail for draft evasion. But the fact that Ben in was... Mexico? No, in America, I think, because they did have dual citizenship. So I think they were... Right, but if he was living in Mexico, can you get drafted if you're not living in America? Well, at that time, they were drafting American citizens, so it doesn't really matter. I guess, fair yeah. enough. So, Alma didn't... So he spent a month in jail. But the fact that Ben was aware of this order, while other saints were not or simply chose to ignore it, was enough to convince Alma that perhaps Ben was the Lord's prophet. Which, again... It's a lot of mental gymnastics to get to that point. No, I get there. I get it. Hmm. He was also helped by a bizarre vision he had of himself, Ben, their sister Esther, and her boyfriend riding in a pickup truck down the Mexican countryside. The following day, Ben would tell him of Esther's boyfriend's plan to ask Dayer for her hand in marriage, so the group set out in a pickup truck down the Mexican countryside. So he was like, oh... This means Ben is the fucking prophet. Again, not sure how he got to that. Sure. After getting to Colonia Juarez, Alma denounced the modern church and praised plural marriage while on the pulpit, which is kind of badass. He showed up to church, was like, all right, I want to say some words. Then they gave him the floor and he was like, fuck you. Fuck you, fuck you, I'm going to have six wives. So, he then returned to Hidalgo to find a second wife, and the church set out to excommunicate him on the grounds of apostasy. You excommunicate these balls! Okay, we will. Oh. Yeah. All right. He then sent a telegram to Joel and Ervil in Puebla. This would make the two brothers abandon their mission and rush to Hidalgo. We don't know what the telegram said, but apparently it was enough for them to be like, we got to get the fuck out of here. I think it was him urging them for help because he was being excommunicated, but we're not sure. Ervil became an instant convert to Ben's church, and by June of that year, all four of the LeBaron brothers were excommunicated from the church. Ervil nice. and Joel because they abandoned their missions. Joel did not join Ben's church, however, and returned to Colonia Juarez, where he would eventually rejoin the Mormon church. Ervil would... Which is interesting to, to me because this happens a lot. There's a couple of different times where, like, one of them leaves, he gets excommunicated, then joins again. And I'm like, so what's the point of excommunication? Learning a lesson. Hmm, I guess. Ervil would remain with Ben for the next seven years. Dyer, meanwhile, was having revelations of his own. Finally, after asking for years to leave Colonia Juarez, the Lord obliged in 1944. I'm going to start selling, like, anytime my girlfriend wants me to do something, I'm like, let me ask God. <laughs> well, this is what we he talked said about last no. time, where it's like, well... God said I could. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, sweetie, it's your lucky day. God said it's foot massage night. <laughs> yeah, God said God I'm said. tired. So, uh, so I've got to stop just because God said it's not me. I'd love to keep going. <laughs> In a remote valley 50 miles south of Colonia Juarez with nothing but a mice-infested hut, mesquite brush, and no running water or electricity, the LeBarons set up shop. The nearest, top, the nearest town was 40 miles away, 
And as late as 1955, the LeBaron Ranch was still nothing but worksheds and crude huts. Ben set up his ranch a short distance away where, the two, where two others had joined his church, Joe Marston, a Mormon fruit peddler, and Owen LeBaron, a cousin from Canada. Ben became comfortable with his new power and began to lay ground rules. Anyone who was seen crossing their legs or arms in his presence was liable to receive a severe lecture for their lack of respect. Oh, I would be fucked. Yeah. I'm a crossing boy. Dude, that's all I do. The women at his homestead of Los Parceles were required to wear long dresses at all times, even during brutal summers. Ben also followed in the steps of Joseph Smith and added many titles to his name, such as the Elephant Strangler. Amazing. The, the Bowl Catcher. Phenomenal. The Eighth Priest, which is kind of a sick-ass like wrestler name. The Eighth it's, Priest. Uh, six out of ten. The World Champion. I don't know oh, why. 10 out of 10. And the Lion of Judah. which 10 I really out of 10. I love the world champion. Yeah. He would prove these titles by doing a staggering amount of push-ups, which proved he was <laughs> the one mighty and strong. And the lion-like roars that he would sometimes produce would prove he was the Lion of Judah. So I hey, like to imagine. Hey, 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 hey. Yeah. yeah, what's up? Check this out. Check how many push-ups I can do. Oh wow, that's a that's a lot of push-ups. Wow. Oh, well, okay. That's like twelve. It's like twelve push-ups. Oh, it's okay. You don't have to keep doing it. Wow, you really are the one mighty and strong in the Lion of Judah. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Just like going over to your like the prophet's house and he's like, watch me do these push-ups. Uh, Wait, check this out. One hand. <clears throat> no one was more impressed, perhaps, than Ervil who eagerly produced pamphlets all the time for his older brother, which I just love that Ervil was like, I'll make some pamphlets. No, no, no like I'll make, I'll make some pamphlets. Okay, look, as a graphic designer. So if I become a cult Sometimes leader, all you can do is make... Yes, 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 I gladly will, yes. Ervil had also begun to exhibit unhinged behavior, shambling about the countryside in dirty rags and arguing with himself while pinching his eyebrows, something that's going to come back a lot, the little pinching of the... Like, like being like... Ah. In 1950, Ben set his eyes on his father's mantle, for it would legitimize his claim to celestial supremacy. All throughout their childhood, the LeBaron boys had heard of the ultimate heirloom which their father would pass on. The only problem was, God never specified which son would carry it. By 1950, Dyer was partially paralyzed, most likely due to his long exposure to lead throughout his house-painting career, and was dying. Fair. As he, yeah. As he lay dying, the boys all vied for his mantle. Ben claimed that Dyer had given it to him in the 1930s, but took it back after a falling out, but had now reinstated it and gave Alma and Ervil high-ranking positions while also naming Cousin Owen King of Israel. Imagine <laughs> the King of Israel being some Canadian named Owen. That's very funny to me. Oh, well, gosh, uh, thank you. I Thank you, Dyer. I, yeah, I'll be King of Israel. That sounds lovely. 
Okay. Continue continue on. <laughs> but after leaving his father's bedside, Wesley claimed it was he, not Ben, who had inherited the mantle. Wesley then hurried back to Utah and began to prep the kingdom of God for the coming millennium. He worked out that he would need spaceships to get the faithful to heaven. So yep. he began mm-hmm. to construct a fleet. Because, of spaceships. Yes, God is all-powerful, but he can't just zap people up to heaven. You need to get them on spaceships. Mm-hmm. Ben argued that Wesley was out of his mind. You're and not fucking stable. You're fucking crazy. What God wants us to do is to keep hanging out on this dirty electricityless compound in Mexico where we fuck a bunch of people and don't talk to anybody. Yeah, I do love I do love one crazy pointing at another crazy and being like, that guy's fucking crazy. You're obviously not Jesus Christ. I'm Jesus Christ, idiot. Duh. And they're like, Ben, who are you talking to? He's like, well, I'm talking to Wesley telepathically. I'm talking to Wesley here. <laughs> He's drawing him on his hand. Ben, you're the smartest brother. You're right. I'm wrong. See, I won. Tell, write Wesley a letter. Tell him that Hand Wesley told me that I have won the day. It's funny that you're doing that like lean back pose because that's how I imagine Ben sitting all the fucking time is just the lean back with the feet up on the desk being like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm the Lord's prophet. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> It's good being king. So, Ben, along with Alma, went into the dying man's room and forced him to give him the mantle. Ben badgered his... Give me the mantle, man! Come on, man! Ben badgered his dying father for several hours until the patriarch finally gave in, which I assume was just him being like, oh my god, just let me fucking die in peace. As Ben knelt by the bed, Alma raised his paralyzed father's hands and put them on his brother's head and then recited the blessing that transferred the mantle and the keys to the kingdom of God from Deir to Ben. Three weeks later, Deir died, failing to accomplish his holy mission, and he would be buried in a predominantly Catholic cemetery, which I'm sure was a slap in the face to him. But despite having the mantle... The end of the House of Ben had just begun. Family. Thanks, Dad. Isn't it about the time? Bye-bye. Dessert is on the house for anyone who saved the universe. (laughs) Thank you. No, thank you. From the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That was Bill. He sings. First, Ervil left, after Joel convinced him that Ben was mad. In 1951, both Ervil and Joel joined a fundamentalist warming group led by Rulin C. Allred, a polygamist from Salt Lake City. They were made elders in the new Colonia LeBaron branch. A year later, Alma also left, and joined Allred's group being named Bishop. Joe Marston would eventually drift away, and Ben and Cousin Owen left for Utah, defeated. But in 1953, after a short stint in a Utah mental hospital, Owen returned to Colonial LeBaron and trumpeted Ben's mantle once more. Alma was swayed over again. Owen claimed that his family was to visit Enoch, a city on the North Star. In order to prepare and to avoid the risk of burning during reentry, obviously the family needed good suntans. So... For several days, the family members could be seen wandering nude, perfecting their tans. Wonderful. Yeah. 
On the day of the scheduled departure, Owen and his family laid on the roof of their colonial baron home, when Joel ordered them to down, threatening to call the cops. After this, Owen told his family the spaceship would actually come from them for them down the road, so they went down the road into the darkness. The next morning, Alma, who was now fearing that maybe he had made the wrong choice again, found the family wandering down the road. He said that they were all like... Like, they, their eyes were glazed over, and they clearly looked like they had, like, fucking suffered a mental breakdown. And some of the children, because, again, this isn't just, like, a couple of adults going around naked. There's children with them, too, who are also naked. And some of the children's faces were burnt, like, smeared with black because they tried to eat coal from the fire. Ah. Uh, to, like, feed themselves. Because they were hungry. Jesus Christ. And after he found them, Owen, uh recounted that one of his wives had had sex with an extraterrestrial at which point him and his second wife had sex with her to you know get some of that benefits when he received instructions to have sex with his dog owen realized that he had actually not heard the voice of god but rather the voice of the devil the devil mm-hmm. yeah yeah go ahead mason mm so he, so his wife had sex with an extraterrestrial, which he believed sure. ha- was was her being reborn. So he was like, "Now me and my other wife have to fuck her to like also be reborn." And then they did that, and then God was oh, like, "That was." But let me be clear: if that was the end of that sentence, mm-hmm. cool, cool. Yeah, but then God was like, "God," or this voice was like, "You should also fuck your dog," and. Owen was like, okay, but wait a second. Wait a minute. God wouldn't ask me to fuck my dog. He'd he ask would me ask, to fuck look, my horse. God would ask me to kill my my children. He wouldn't ask, he me, wouldn't to ask me to fuck a dog. That's crazy. Yeah. So, Cousin Owen was ordered to leave Colonial Aberrant. He would later be deported back to Canada and committed to a mental hospital. Ben was busy in Salt Lake City getting in trouble with the law. After having held up traffic for half an hour while he did 200 push-ups to bolster his one mighty strong Okay, that is pretty impressive. That's, that's someone who is mighty and strong, in my opinion. I can't mm-hmm. do 200. I can yeah. do like maybe 40. Shortly after, he was committed to a mental hospital and would remain there until 1958. The decline of the House of Ben continued. Irene, the oldest, settled in a small town in southern Arizona. She stayed out of the drama of the family, occasionally helping those struggling with mental ailments and those running from Ervil's assassination attempts. But during her first pregnancy, Irene became convinced that she was set to have twins. When only one child was born, she accused the hospital of stealing the other. This theft seemed to unhinge her, and for many years, she would wage this campaign against medical authorities. Ben's mental health only deteriorated more. In 1957, he began to write bizarre letters to Allred, one of which read, You may think I'm kidding, but I always hear the voice of the Lord all the time. I have never make any mistakes. I'm infallible and perfect in all ways, as a little child is. I don't think so. I know so. The Lord has told me. He would then send another in 1962 that read, I am God. Ha! The third, the Holy Ghost, 
or the third member of the Trinity since Adam went to Mars nearly 300 years ago. <laughs> Leaving Jesus and Joseph Smith in charge. Jesus was killed for saying he was the son of God. Joseph Smith was killed for interfering, for inferring he was one of the Trinity. This guy, me right here, I was killed for the same reason but an angel of god has raised me from the dead and i stand truthful in all things your duty is to gather all the tithing on earth to me give it to me to build temples and churches and maintain them take two more wives thus saith the lord which again is me isn't that the most crazy shit you've ever read? Yeah, that's fucking wild. It it would be funny if it wasn't like if if not everything that came after this this mm. you know what I mean. And well, it, I also it's like also the, kind of sad because it's like you just see how crazy this person is. But it's also what's funniest about it is the way it starts like a bit. The way it's like, yeah. look, you may you may think that I know this is gonna sound crazy, <laughs> but it turns out I'm God. Why I look I know. Look, I'm the mo I'm more shocked than anybody else, but my, it turns out it's me. My favorite part is where he's like, Yeah, these guys were killed. And also well, I was killed. This if you told me Kanye said this now, I would believe you. If you said oh, this came oh, from 100%, Kanye. percent Yeah. They, tell me that Kanye hasn't tweeted this out. Well he can't mm-hmm. anymore because he's off Twitter. Tell me he hasn't posted this on his Instagram. Or also, I love the the first one could also be like a a, Joe, a, a Donald Trump thing, like Lots of people say this. Lots of people are saying this. They say, you're like a little child. You're as perfect as a little child, Donald Trump. I don't think so. I don't think so. I know so. I know so. The Lord God has told me. It's true. Many people are saying this. Many people. I, I also do like that he ends it with just being like, yeah, take two more wives on me. Like, go, Also, go hey, buy yourself something nice. Get two more. Get two more girls. Go on. On me. It's on me, man. Ben would be in and out of mental hospitals for 16 years, with the voices getting louder and louder. By 1978, the strain was too much. In the early morning hours of August 16th, he was involved in an altercation at Continental Trailways bus terminal in Little Rock, Arkansas. When police arrived, they found Ben walking down traffic on Main Street Bridge. They approached and asked him to stop. Ben looked back, shouted that he wouldn't return to the state hospital, ran to the bridge railing, and leapt into the Arkansas River 50 feet below. It would be several days before his body would be found and several months before it would be identified. When 80-year-old Maud heard the news, she was consoled by the thought that Ben would not suffer any more winters alone. Oof, that's sad. And it's just sad because, again, like he was this shining star, this shining member of the family who had all this potential and then suffered a mental breakdown fueled by his religious delusions that were instilled within him from as a child and then he just never recovered. Just sad stuff, well, man. Well, it makes me feel better at least that that was that's certainly upsetting and sad, but we're not going to go into anything that's even crazier or... Even, it's like, it's just going to be like Ervil being, and he's crazy, and he's going to do fucked up shit, but we're not going to have anything that's like funny crazy happening anymore after this. No. No. No, we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wesley remained in Salt Lake City, his church consisting mm-hmm. of himself and his goats, 
the holes sure. of his unfinished spaceships rusting in his yard. He believes yep. Adam will return to the Earth on a spaceship. In the meantime, yep. he teaches dogs how to talk telepathically. Lucinda's mm-hmm. mental. And just it's mm-hmm. just nothing but nothing but solemn hard hitting truths from here on out. Yep. You know, cuz I mean like a you know, I think about a church that's just a man and goats holes of rusted <laughs> fake spaceships while he tries to teach dogs to talk <laughs> telepathically. I just wish there was some sort of comedy in there that I could pull out, but you know, there's nothing. Just can't. Just can't. Lucinda's mental <laughs> Lucinda's mental health. What are you thinking about right now? Sparky. (laughs) Sparky. Lucinda's mental health only got worse, and she was finally committed to a U.S. mental hospital in the 1950s, where she would spend her days until her death in the mid-80s. Alma divided his time between Colonial LeBaron, San Diego, and his ranch in Baja, California. His first wife left him, but he married half a dozen other women and fathered over 50 children. He began to turn his ranch into a gathering place for the faithful who he will lead when the end of days come. In 1955, thoughtful, soft-spoken Joel broke from Allred's group and announced that he, not Ben or Wesley, had secretly inherited their father's mantle. Joel was the real one mighty and strong, and thus the reign of the house of Joel began. And this is where we'll pick up with the third part of our Ervil LeBaron and the House of the Lamb of God when we examine Joel's rise to power, Ervil's rise to power, Ervil's eventual betrayal of Joel in the carnage that ensued. Any hey. last thoughts before we wrap up the show, Mason? I like the guy that tried to talk to dogs and build spaceships. Yeah, he was kind of funny. I want a church of goats and spaceships. It's so, this is such an interesting dogs. series because the first part is us talking about these and again, sorry to those in the Mormon church, but these very obvious conmen, right? Who, mm-hmm. who who were mentally fit, but used their positions of power to benefit greatly, right? And then yep. set forth some presidents that were bad that one of these maniacs from this family would later use to do horrible things. And then this second part is just examining how mental health issues and rel- like religious fanaticism don't mix and they make really bad things. And this is just the tip of the iceberg because so far the only people who have gotten hurt are the people who were like trying to push these beliefs, but it only gets worse from here. It's what happens when it's like, it's a narcissist raising a psychopath. Yeah. 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 Uh, The narcissist is not good for society, but the psychopath is, almost much more sympathetic in the sense that they didn't have a chance. The way I compare it is, having recently going through a watch through of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. Dare was Cersei. Oh. Ervil is Joffrey. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I guess, I mean, that makes him much less sympathetic, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. Not that this guy should be sympathetic. No, Ervil was just, you said psychopath earlier, or, or uh, yeah, that's uh, fully how I would describe it. Yeah. Well, anyway. It's the difference between wanting power and control and wanting blood, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's fucked up. Well then, Mason, let's wrap the show up. Thup, 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 thup. If you like the show, make sure to leave a five-star review, which you can do in-app on Apple Podcasts. 
and now Spotify. We'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review. Plus, it really helps the show, and we'll read your review on the show. You can support the show by going to our Patreon, by going to patreon.com backslash Captain's Logcast and donate a dollar or anything. Anything at all keeps us from starving. Another yes. thing you can do to help the show and yourself is go over to Tee Public and shop our merch. Click the link in our show notes and grab yourself anything with our new design on it. I just got my new shirt that I designed. Pretty cool. It looks, it looks great on me. It looks good. I look amazing it really in good. it. I'm not wearing it right now. Not to toot our own horn, but because of the, the, the style of the art. It it just looks like an old, like, uh, a couple washes, and it'll look like an old, like, vintage. Mm-hmm. It's going to feel good. Scary show shirt. I don't know. Yeah, like, it details from the crypt yeah, vibes. Yeah, something. Yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great. You're going to love it. Remember, if you donate slash support us, it all goes towards improving the show, getting better recording equipment, Etc. Mason, where can these fine listeners of ours find you? Mainly, you can find me on Instagram. Instagram, Instagram at Mason. Is something ins- else. Yes, at Instagram. Uh, at Instagram at Mason SHR, where you can see all of my graphic design work do and it. my artwork, and sometimes some fun photos Go of me looking do it. hot. He looks Please. hot. So hot. Please. Too hot. Too handle. Too handle. I would very much appreciate it. Thank you. You can also find me on Twitter, but I don't really tweet. Well, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at j.valle underscore junior and the show on Twitter and Instagram at Captain's Log Pod. We recommend various different materials on there, post show updates, post some occasionally funny things. Ha 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 ha. So go check it out. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can find me as Jose Valle Jr., Animal Productions, and of course, the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. If you can't get enough of me and you also want to listen to the other podcast I have with Friend of the Log, Max Banyan called Max and Jose, have something to say. You can go do that right now. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the show if you enjoy it. And if you'd like to share your opinion on this case or have some insight to share uh, about Mormonism, about Ervil LeBaron, about any, about anything. Tell us how your day is. Mm-hmm. You can write to us at captainslogcast at gmail.com. You can also suggest episode topics, guests you'd like to have back, etc. Make sure to subscribe and download an Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Play, and any other podcast directory. We want to thank Carlos Rivera for composing our show's theme. And before we sign off, I want to say thank you to our fans in Estonia. Uh, over the last couple of months, we noticed that we had quite a significant for us following in Estonia. If you're a crazy Estonian listening out there, thank you. We really appreciate it. And shout out to, in the U.S., our listeners in Georgia. You guys have been where we get our most downloads so far. So thank you. I like it. But with that, everybody, we have reached the end of our show. We will see you soon for another episode. I've been your merry little Christmas captain, Ozevaya Jr., joined by... Mason Elf on a Liquor Shelf Schrader. And this has been Captain's Log. End of transmission. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Bye. Pew. Boop. Happy holidays. <laughs>